page 11 in your pew Bibles. I think the scripture is going to be on the screen. We're in Genesis 17. I'm going to read verses 15 through 27. So that's Genesis 17, verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her, her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety-nine, ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my, my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among them, among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son, Ishmael, were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Morning, church. It can be hard, in some ways, to be a speaker and a preacher of God's word in the age of the internet. At your fingertips right now, there are countless options of other people that you can listen to who maybe connect with your personality better or, quite frankly, just better communicators or speakers or interpreters of God's word. In the past, I've thought before, why don't they just listen to someone else? Like, what good can I offer when there's so many other good opportunities available for people to listen to? And what you notice what I was doing in my heart and what was happening is that I was starting to sideline myself through cynicism. Cynicism is a view of the world where uh, your own ability, your own circumstances, however limited or small they are, define what God can do through you in the future. It's no longer God who defines who you are and what you can do. It's your circumstances and your ability and your experiences in life. Now the reason I share that is because cynicism is in many ways the spirit of our age and of our time where we prefer rather than to take risks, to sit back and to judge and assess, not open ourselves up, not make ourselves vulnerable, Right? So we, pre we prefer to be in the judgment seat rather than the acting seat and to shrink back. 
So a question I want to ask this morning is how can we battle the destructive influence of cynicism that seeks to sideline us and keep us from fulfilling our purpose in the kingdom of God? And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus and you're here this morning, first of all, we're really glad you're here. And second of all, you might be a cynic too. And this morning, I would just like to present to you from God's word a great alternative to it as we go into our next story and watch Abraham and Sarah, his wife, walk through this next episode of their life. So last week, we heard the first half of this story. Pastor Sam preached it. So after 13 years, God shows up to Abraham and Sarai again. 13 years ago was the biggest failure of their entire lives. They had tried to get Sarai pregnant through Abraham so that they could have a son and fulfill God's promise instead of waiting for God to fulfill that promise through Sarai. After 13 years of silence, after 13 years of waiting, after 13 years after that failure, God shows up again to Abraham and he reaffirms his covenant. He reaffirms his promises. He gives Abraham a new name. He gives him the sign of circumcision. There is a lot there. There's a lot going on in that text. But basically, God is saying to Abraham, I am still utterly committed to you after you failed. I'm still utterly committed to work through you even after you disrespected and despised me in the ways that you did. And now in this text, he's going to go one step further and he's going to talk about how he's utterly committed to Sarai too. He's not just committed to Abraham, he's committed to Sarai too. So despite their objections, despite their schemes, Despite their suggestions that God should use other people and work otherwise, God is insistent that he's going to work through them. And that's where the story leads us right now. So let's hop in and see the second half of the story from Genesis 17. We're going to start out now in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. God had a new name for Abraham, and now he has a new name for Sarai. Her new name is Sarah. And Sarah roughly means something along the lines of princess. So God renames her princess. And Abraham, do you remember what his name meant? It was father of a multitude. So these names are communicating something to us. Actually, these names are taking us right back to the very beginning of the story, to the very beginning of the Bible. Because when God first creates human beings in his image, the first thing he says to them is be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and have dominion. So at the very beginning, God tells humanity to be fruitful and multiply, parent a multitude, and have dominion, be royalty and rule. So I think these names are a clue that through Abraham and Sarah, God is completely in the process of restoring humanity. He's taking humanity back to its original purpose before the fall and before the ruin, and he's setting everything right. Abraham and Sarah are like a new Adam and a new Eve, and God's starting a new humanity through them, which if you read the story up to this point, or if you've lived in this world for any length of time, you would know that becoming a new creation is the only hope you have and other people have, and God's saying that this is the very thing that I am doing. This is the very thing that I'm about. 
And by the time we get later into the story to Abraham's ultimate offspring, to Jesus, he starts saying things along the lines of, you will become a new creation. And what we're seeing is the completion of this plan that God starts thousands of years ago through Abraham and Sarah to take human beings back to what God originally intended them to be before the ruin and before the fall that's affected every single one of us. Our God doesn't like to discard people and discard things. He likes to redeem people who come to him and transform them into what he always meant for them to be. Wow, that's good news for us this morning. Abraham, Sarah, father of a multitude and princess. God is showing immense honor and dignity towards Sarah in this passage right here. Right? He's calling her princess. He's bestowing on her the honor and dignity that she should have received, but that she forfeited when she said I want Hagar to replace me. That her husband forfeited when he replaced her with Hagar. God's saying your sin and your failure are not going to have the final word. I will. I'm going to rename you. I'm going to call you what you are. I'm going to determine what your value is. And that is exactly what happens here in the beginning of this story. Now we move on to verse 16. God says, I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. And she shall become nations. Kings of people will come from her. So God says, twice over, I'm going to bless her. So God's saying, I'm double committing to this woman, this imperfect woman who doubted me, this imperfect woman who tried to replace herself. I am committing to her. And kings and nations are going to come from her. She has a position of honor in God's kingdom. And she would have felt like she lacked a position of honor in the ancient Near East, where she failed to have an offspring, where she failed to have a child. In the ancient Near East, a woman's worth was weighed and valued by whether or not she could produce many children or not. Sarah couldn't do that. Sarah had received a promise decades before that she would do that. All around her, her friends are having children, maybe even grandchildren, maybe even great-grandchildren as she reaches 90 years old and it hasn't happened to her. She would have felt a sense of dishonor and God is insisting here that there is honor for her. He says that there's going to be nations and kings that come from her, which means that this royal destiny... This purpose of restoring her humanity is not just limited to her and to Abraham, but is shared with all of their offspring. And so when God starts by making Abraham and Sarah new, he doesn't stop there. Their children have the same royal destiny. Their children come from the same source from God. And what happens is it means it's a picture that not just them, but all of God's people become new. All of us become new when we follow Jesus. We see that there's a royal line, a royal group of descendants that come from this couple who God determines to make into new people with a new destiny. God remains committed to his purposes and his people. When Sarah tries to remove herself from the equation, God will not accept that proposal. He will not take no for an answer. He remains committed to using broken and failed people like you and myself to fulfill his purposes in the world. 
He doesn't substitute us for other people. That's the kind of God he is, and that is how he works. So let's see now how Abraham responds. How does Abraham respond to God showing up and insisting yet again? I feel like this is like maybe the 10th time God has insisted to him that him and Sarah are going to have a child, right? It just keeps happening. It's basically the plot line of the story. How is Abraham going to respond now? 13 years later, it's another decade and a half has passed. He's 100 years old. How is he going to respond? Let's look at verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. He laughs at God and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So Abraham starts off well. So when God Almighty shows up and says something like that to him, he gets on his face. That's, that's good, right? That's a good, good response to God. But there's something else going on, his heart, in, on in his heart because the very next thing he does is he laughs at God. He thinks it's funny. He, he can't quite receive what God is saying to him, so instead he despises God and he laughs at God instead. And the reason why he laughs at God is because he said, God, I am 100 years old now. Sarah is 90. You made this promise decades ago. I know it's not going to happen. If it was going to happen, it already would have happened. I'm not going to open myself up to disappointment anymore. So instead of accepting your word, I'm going to laugh at you. Abraham has fallen into the trap of cynicism. Where it's no longer God's word or God's character that's the biggest thing determining how he lives and feels. The biggest thing that's determining how he lives and feels is his own circumstances, his own self, and his own estimation of his life. That's what controls his emotions. That's what controls his beliefs. And so, in his mind and in his heart at this moment, after a long string of hardship, God has become small, and his circumstances have become big. Does anyone here ever feel that tendency happen to you? The longer you live through hardship, the longer you go through difficult things, the smaller your God becomes, the smaller your expectations become, and the bigger your problems get. Until, quite frankly, it seems like your circumstances are your God, and God is just something that you do on Sunday morning. So, it's traded places. And so, his laughing at God is a rejection of God. A rejection that he's bigger. A rejection that he's stronger. And in Abraham's mind, in his estimation, he knows. He knows what happens with 100-year-olds. He knows what happens with 90-year-old bodies. He knows that there won't be a child. And maybe, maybe he's having something like disappointment fatigue, right? Where he's just, he's had this expectation for this child for so long. And he's like, I'm just not going to, God, I just, I'm done, I'm done with the disappointment. I would rather laugh right now than accept your promise. And in fact, God... Instead of making me go through disappointment, would you please just make Ishmael the child of promise? Would you please just replace Isaac with Ishmael? 
which is just crazy. This is just a crazy thing for Abraham to say to God. God, would you please accept my flawed plan in my flesh rather than your great purpose that you promised to fulfill through me? He's so eager to avoid disappointment and avoid opening himself up to God anymore that he would rather have Ishmael just be the child of promise rather than wait on God to do something greater than he could imagine or dream in that moment. He's given in to cynicism and he's cutting himself off from the God who is there, from the God who lives, and he would rather prefer solutions of this world and solutions of the flesh than submitting himself to continue trusting and following his Lord. How do you think God's going to respond to getting laughed at? How do you think God's going to respond to Abraham's suggestion that Ishmael should be the heir instead of Isaac? Let's see. Let's take a look now and see how God responds. Verse 19. God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. I love how this verse starts. Look at that first word that God says. No. Man, that's a word that I need sometimes. That's a word that some of us need sometimes. When we think we've got it figured out, when we think we know a better way for God to do something than how he promised, than what his word says, a good word for us at that moment is no. No. No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Now, I love this moment, too, because this is where God gets a little spicy. It's a little spicy with Abraham and Sarah. If you look at your Bibles, there's a little number by Isaac's name in some of your Bibles, and it leads to a footnote at the bottom of the page. It's going to translate Isaac's name into English. Well, what does it mean? What does Isaac's name mean in English? Yeah, it means something, something along the line of laughter. So Abraham... Remember when you were laughing at me about having that son when you were 100 and your wife was 90? Well, when he's born, you're going to name him Laughter. Because we're going to remember this moment. And what's going to be funny, what's going to be funny was not that you and that I promised that you and Sarah would have a child. What's going to be funny is that your faith was so small when I was so big. So he wants his child to be a memorial to him and to his wife that they grossly misestimated the size of their God. Every time they, rem- they say, laughter, come here, laughter, let's go do this, don't be like, oh man, we were laughing at God. <laughs> and we were so wrong. We were so wrong. And I'm sure there's moments you've had like that, the moments that I've had like that, that just prove God's faithfulness when we didn't expect it. And so I just encourage you this morning to repent and turn from the small view that we can tend to have of God and the big view we can have of our circumstances and replace those and switch those up. 
And God says, I will establish my covenant with him, with Isaac, as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So God remains intent on establishing his covenant with Isaac, not Ishmael. God will bring his kingdom into the world through covenant. Covenant is a way that God brings his kingdom to earth. Covenant is a way that God brings heaven to earth. God insists, I'm going to do it through Isaac, through my solution, rather than Ishmael, through your solution. And then, at this point in the story, some of us might think, well, God, what about Ishmael? Do you, like, not like this guy? Like, what did he do that was wrong? Did he, he, he didn't have any part to play in this. This was all Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar's conspiring. Why do you feel like you're rejecting Ishmael time and time again? Is he someone who's small in your eyes? Is he someone you don't like? Is he someone who you're rejecting? Well, let's... Take a look here at verse 20 and see what God's heart is for Ishmael. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So God's talking, saying, hey, I'm going to bless Isaac too. Bless is a word that takes us back to Eden also. Bless is what God does when he pours out abundant life and favor and his presence on people, just like he does right at the start. So basically what this is saying is that, hey, as far as Ishmael is concerned, there's enough Eden blessings to go around. You don't have to be worried about him. I'm going to take care of him too. Just because I'm going to fulfill my plan through Isaac does not mean I don't care for, love, and bless Ishmael. In fact, the plan to be fulfilled through Isaac is to rescue all the nations of which Ishmael would be a part And so God's saying, my heart is generous, my heart is large, my heart is big. You don't have have to have a cynical, low view of myself that in choosing Isaac, I am rejecting Ishmael. No, in choosing Isaac, I'm fulfilling my plan in my way, in my time, rather than your way, in your time. But I have enough Eden blessings to go around, right? All I'm rejecting, Abraham, is your attempt to edit my plan. I'm not rejecting Ishmael. In fact, I have a heart for him. And I want to bless him and turn him into a great nation just like I'm going to turn Isaac into. And so this is a picture for us that we, when we tend to view God's heart as small and be cynical towards his motives and his plans, his heart is actually way bigger and way more expansive than we ever thought or dreamed it would be. It's more expansive than your heart. It's more expansive than my heart. And so in situations where it seems like God's not listening, God's not looking, God's not there, It's not true. He will always exceed our expectations in how good of a God he turns out to be. Then we get to verse 22 then. We're going to see now how Abraham responds to this conversation that he has with God. Verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh 
of his foreskin. Now, if you look at verse 22, I really like how this conversation ends. It just says, when God finished talking with him, he went up. It's like, he doesn't really care what Abraham has to say. I mean, he does, but it just isn't really that important. He just kind of ends the conversation on his terms, and he's gone. And it's just a reminder to us that relationship with God is always on his terms and not our terms. It's just basically what this whole passage is saying. I'm not going to relate to you on your terms. I'm going to relate to you on my terms. Yes, I'll do more good to you than you imagined, dreamed, or hoped. But yes, you also have to completely surrender to me. I do not bow to you. I do not bend to you. I do not take advice from you. I do not listen to mere people. When I decide what's best for you and for the world, I do whatever I deem is right. That's the God of the Bible. And apparently Abraham listened to him, which is such a sweet and beautiful picture in this passage, is that even when we fall into the trap of cynicism and fall into the sin of having a low view of God, there's always a path forward for us to grow, and Abraham's going to demonstrate that path right now. Then Abraham took his son and circumcised him, right? He circumcised himself, he circumcised his son, he circumcised everyone in his house. On that very same day as God had said, Abraham goes and rushes into emergency surgery. It's, this is like some radical obedience in the ancient world. We're talking no modern equipment, right? No modern tools. They're, they're in a foreign land. They're, they could be attacked militarily, and this would probably lead to a difficulty responding. And they do this bloody act of circumcision. This is miraculous, speedy obedience. Right? When our hearts turn from cynicism to faith, it's evidenced by immediate, radical obedience like this. It, faith gives life to us. Faith moves us. Faith changes us. If cynicism paralyzes us, confidence in, in God puts us into immediate action. And this is immediate and drastic action. This is the kind of immediate and drastic action our Lord wants us to take. And I'm with you. It's weird. Like, this is a really strange image, circumcision. And Sam gave some really helpful thoughts last week on just what this is and what it could mean. And just one more thing that even sticks out to me here is that Abraham is literally mortifying his flesh. That's what the image is. He's cutting off his flesh and putting it to death. He had this plan to use that part of his body inappropriately to fulfill God's plan. And he keeps going back to that plan until this moment. He never goes back to Ishmael after this. He's cutting that old plan off. He's cutting his old dependence on his sin off. He's repenting. When we read the word circumcision in the Bible, rather than being weirded out, we should think this is a vivid image of repentance and what God wants us to do on the inside of us. It's an image on the outside of what Abraham is supposed to do on the inside of cut off his old allegiances, his old desires, his own plans, and replace it with a beautiful devotion to God instead. And that's what's coming true here. Abraham is replacing his old allegiances, his old sin patterns, and his old hopes with a beautiful allegiance to God. And so when we hear and think about circumcision, we should think, I need to cut off the old self, the old man, the old person, the old desires, and replace it with a beautiful devotion to God. Repentance like circumcision is costly, painful, humbling process. 
But when you repent, you replace your misplaced hope with a true and living hope that bears fruit forever. Where you were in your sin was not going to satisfy you, your longings or your cravings or your expectations. When you repent and you follow God and put your trust in Jesus, you find yourself moving towards a living hope that never fails you. Now there's one last part of this text to take a look at. Verses 26 and 27. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So you start off, verse 26. Abraham and his son Ishmael are circumcised. You think, yeah, that's great. Abraham and his biological son are circumcised. That makes sense. But then it radically expands beyond that to the hundreds of men who are part of his household. Both men born of his household and foreigners who have joined his household. Now what's going on there? We're starting to see a picture of the family of God growing to expand and include the nations and anyone who comes to God. It shows us that our biggest need is not to be a biological descendant of Abraham. Our biggest need is to be adopted by God the Father. And, it, and circumcision of all these people is looking forward to the day when through Jesus Christ, God adopts anyone who comes to him. The household of God is expanding to include all the people who love and serve and follow the God of the Bible. And what this story shows us is that the one way in Circumcision demonstrates that the one way into this household is through repentance. And so later in the story of the Bible, when we get to Jesus Christ, he invites anyone to come to him who will repent and believe. And so if you're here this morning and you're wondering, how can I trade in my low and bitter expectations for big expectations in a big God who loves and saves and forgives me, the way into that family, the way into that hope is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. It's really that simple. And I would invite you this morning to come to him if you haven't come to him yet. How do we want to respond to this story as a church? How should we respond to this story? And I think the answer is not that we need to be circumcised in our flesh, but that we need to be circumcised afresh in our hearts. We need our hearts to change. We need to cut off from our allegiances and from our affections the things that compete with our loyalty and devotion to our God. You notice how violent that image is? You've got to cut it off. It's what the word repentance is getting at. A violent response to our sin. Cutting it off. How does that happen? How do you repent? How do you circumcise your heart? Actually, the first step is not towards working harder. The first step is not towards just deciding to be a purer or better person. The first step is to fix your attention on Jesus Christ. He's the only one and only thing that's more beautiful than your sin. He's the only thing that appeals to your heart more than your sin does. And so if your allegiances and your loyalty is going to change from your sin to Jesus, the first thing you need to do is spend time thinking about him and becoming acquainted with him and talking with him and spending time with him and asking God to change your heart so that you become more like him and love him more. 
It's how you circumcise your heart. Now let's apply that truth to ourselves when it comes to our cynicism. Because all of us stumble into being like Abraham. We find ourselves judgmental, detached, and numb. Just like the spirit of this age encourages us to be. Let me share with you three examples. We are cynical when we believe we are too old or spent, too injured or weak, or have had too traumatic or sinful of a past to be of any more use to God. So we stop expecting great things from God or attempting great things for God. Instead, we think there's someone better or different God that you should use than me. Example two, we are in cynical unbelief when we stop believing that being with the Father, loving his family, and making disciples is the most satisfying life and will bring blessing to the nations. And three, we are in cynical unbelief as a community when we stop praying for and yearning for revival and settle into church life as usual and settle for comfort rather than the nations. Which leads me to our main point for this morning is that we need to circumcise our cynicism. We got to take all those ways we have a low expectation for God, low expectation of how he'll use us, low expectation for what the future holds, low expectations that lead to paralysis, and we got to cut them off and replace them with a great big God who has great big purposes for his weak people who trust in him. If God using us comes down to the size of our God rather than our own greatness, then our confidence and hope is a direct reflection on how great we think he is. And so if this morning you are in the trap of I don't think God is going to do great things through me because of X, Y, and Z, it reveals a low view of your God that you and me both need to repent of and replace that with a confident expectation of hope of what God will do through us instead. Just like Abraham needed to have a great expectation of what he was going to do through him and Sarah. What would look differently in our lives if we circumcised our cynicism and lived with confident expectation and hope instead? One, we would live with the settled confidence that God wants to use even us and even me to make an everlasting difference in the lives of others. Two, we would embrace a life of spending time with God, loving his family, and making disciples with a thrilling expectation that God is going to bless the nations through our church. Three, our whole church community would remain desperate for revival in our city, praying and expecting that that day would come. Christians expect that God will bring new life against all odds. God brought new life through Abraham and Sarah in the form of Isaac against all odds. God brought new life against all odds when Jesus walked out of the grave. Christians should be the least cynical people on the planet. If there was any moment to be cynical in the history of the world, wouldn't it be when the author of life was hanging on a cross? That, that would be the moment to be cynical. And three days later, 
He got out of the grave. He smashed all that cynicism and put it in the grave instead. And now he lives so that we can have confident expectation of all the things that he's done and yet to do in and through us. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you, God, that all of us have reasons to hope today greater than we could have ever thought or imagined. And I ask that you would turn our cynicism into confidence, hope, and trust that leads us into immediate, immediate obedience and to attempt and expect great things from you, God. Please meet us where we're at right now and minister to us, but don't leave us where we're at. Take us forward the next step on this journey of being with you and becoming like you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.